Welcome to the Seek Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I'm Erin Falbo, your host for this season. Each week, we're sharing content that dives into the heart of the gospel, who God is, who we are, and what it means to live in relationship with Him. We're excited to walk with you as you encounter the Lord. In this episode, Tim Glimkowski unpacks some vision and key takeaways for how leaders can begin to cultivate an apostolic culture at their parish and transform it for good. Our next speaker dedicates the majority of his time to initiatives within the Archdiocese of Denver that helps parishes and lay people engage in apostolic mission. He's the author of a book called Made for Mission, Renewing Your Parish Culture, and it offers four practical keys to radical change in parishes. His wife Maggie and their three children live in Lakewood, Colorado. Speaking to you today about renewing your parish culture, please welcome Tim Glemkowski. Hi, I'm Tim Lemkowski. I'm the Director of Strategy in the Archbishop's Office for the Archdiocese of Denver. And uh, it's a real honor to be with you for this impact session. I want to dive deep and, and dig deep on this, this topic of, of parish life and, and culture change, knowing that there's probably a, a very diverse audience in terms of their relationship with parish life encountering this. But I want to present some real meat and dig into some concepts that I think are a little rich. But, but hoping that it gives us a, uh, an opportunity to kind of, I think I meet a lot of people sometimes who are a little bit bewildered by their parish. You know, maybe they encounter um, a great you know, community on campus where they really experience like a missionary dynamism and, and real community that they can grow in faith in and people running after holiness together. And then it's almost like moving the moving walkway at the airport or something where they get home and, and encounter their parish life. And they're like, well, what's, what's going on here? You know, why is this so much of what I have come to know and love about the faith? I'm having a hard time finding here and it feels isolating or maybe the, the sacraments are, or that missionary culture and dynamism not present. Um, and I really want to address what I feel like is a vision for parish life, for, for what parishes are being called to um, in our apostolic time. It, it's my conviction, uh, my contention, kind of the point of this talk is, is that the idea that the parish is the great missionary opportunity of the church right now. Um, but I want to qualify that right? because it doesn't always seem that way, right? When we actually encounter, not as they are, but as I believe God is calling them to be. Um, so, but before we do that, let's, let's just begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you for um, the local church present um, in, in, our, in our lives. And, and we ask for um, the eyes to see in this apostolic moment how you're calling parishes to um, adopt a fundamentally missionary culture and stance toward um, both internally and, and, and toward the world. We ask for um, the grace to be convicted um, deep and to see differently and, and clearly what you're calling us to in our individual lives and, and our local churches. Um, in this in this new apostolic age. And we consecrate this talk and, and all those who are watching uh, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary through Our Lady Our Lady of Guadalupe, her intercession. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So like I said, the, the, the kind of the theme of this talk is the parish is the church's great missionary opportunity right now. But here's kind of what Pope Francis had to say about that. In Evangelii Gaudium, paragraph 28, which was the document, The Joy of the Gospel, the post-synodal apostolic exhortation that came after the, uh, the synod on the new evangelization in 2012. Pope Francis, this was kind of one of his first documents that he released, really, and I think in many ways kind of forms the, the vision for his own pontificate, for his papacy, and, and, and really this missionary call to renewal that the church is experiencing right now. Um, in that he says, 
the parish is not an outdated institution, right? And, and that can be kind of the temptation for us sometimes. When I, I talk about some of those struggles we have with parish life, where we can encounter it and say, like, this thing is just broken. It's not going to be relevant to my life. And shouldn't we just kind of do things outside of the parish? And I think largely to date, um, the church has been very successful at that, right? This call to the new evangelization uh, that, the, that the church has had, you know, for, for years now, in many ways has existed extra parochially, right? Outside of the parish or institute. It's been movements and apostolates like Focus or, or, or you know, um, that, that really have driven much of the missionary dynamism of the church to incredible impact, right? Like we should recognize in so many ways, even given some of the, the, the struggles of the church right now or some of the statistical decline that we still see, that because of the, the way the movements and apostolates have picked up this call to the new evangelization, we've seen remarkable fruit. You know, thousands and thousands of vocations that never would have existed. Millions of conversions, myself included, right? Probably you, that would have never existed without these apostolates and movements. And so why I think the parish is not an outdated institution, what Pope Francis says, is because precisely because it has great flexibility to contour to the needs of the people in its local territory. He says... It's not an outdated institution if it's capable of self-renewal, right? So there's, the parish is relevant, extremely relevant to the missionary mandate of the church, to the call of the new evangelization, but only if it proves capable of the self-renewal that's required given the unique challenges of our moment, right? Which, which he, Pope Francis has also said, what is that unique challenge of our moment? It's not that we just, we live in an age of change, right? We recognize that technology is changing every day and things are are, are crazy. It feels like every few years, you know, there's just an, a rapid pace um, to kind of the way society and the world is changing right now. But he says it's not just that we live in an age of change, but we're actually living in a change of age. And, and Archbishop Fulton Sheen, I mean, this has been something the church has been talking about for years. I mean, decades and decades. And in, in 1973, he said, you know, we're living. What is this change of age? He said, we're living at the end of Christendom, right? What's really happening right now, and when you look at the, the remarkable statistical decline, there was another study, you know, Pew Research and Barnum, these different groups do these studies on kind of religious practice and belief in the United States. And they looked recently, and, you know, a few years ago in, in 2019, for the first time in a very long time, uh, Catholics weren't the single largest religious body in the United States, right? It was nuns, those who profess no definite, and there's, a, there's you know, varied and diverse stories within that groups of nuns in terms of how they kind of encounter and, and, and appreciate maybe religious belief or practice. But the reality is, is that nuns now in the United States are the single largest religious group that we have, right? And it was about 24% a few years ago. They just did a, they re, you know, studied it uh, just this past year in 2021, just a couple years later, right? 28% now of the United States of America identify as having no definite religious belief and practice, right? And so this change of age, what, what's, what's happening right now is that we're moving from this Christendom context that we used to exist in to a fundamentally apostolic one, right? So think of those early apostles. I remember I had my kind of big conversion when I was about 18 years old, right? Just heading into my freshman year uh, in college. I encountered Jesus profoundly in the Eucharist, and it kind of changed my life forever, right? It, it seemed, everything that had seemed so, you know, maybe boring or irrelevant or, or, or not life-giving about the faith that I'd kind of grown up in, all of a sudden became real and alive. I encountered a relationship and a person that changed me forever, right? And, uh, and I remember going to college, and I, I had the chance to do a study abroad semester as a, as a sophomore, and for the first time really decided to read the book, Acts of the Apostles. 
And it was like this community just leapt off the page at me, right? As you hear the stories of these, these men and women, priests and lay people who are, who are living dynamically in community together, you know, really pursuing Christ, like surrendering their entire lives to Christ, like urgently desiring the holiness that he wants for them, and then urgently desiring also for all to encounter the joy that, and the life to the full that they've come to experience in, in Christ Jesus, right? And it shook me. Because in so many ways, looking at this community was very different from the parish community that I had grown up in, right? Just candidly, right? And no criticism on anybody, but, but in so many ways, when, when you look at the, the founding myths uh, like of many uh, parish communities today, generally in my experience, right, I, I had an opportunity through an apostle I founded at the Catholic Institute to work with parishes across the country, kind of on renewal initiatives. And, and largely in, in different contexts, there, there was one of kind of two stories for how a lot of parishes were founded, Right? Um, and generally it had to do with there was a stable community of the faithful that were desiring even greater stability, right? A, a building and a context and, and, and a stable, you know, life for, for who they were as a parish, right? It was either, you know, in, in places like the Northeast or, or in the Midwest. I'm from Chicago, you know, where, where I was from. A lot of times it was immigrant communities, right? Uh, my Polish, you know, the Glemkowskis, you know, landed with a lot of other Polish people on the south side of Chicago about 100 years ago. And, and there were so many Catholics in that area that they just gave the little that they had, even as poor immigrants, to build, you know, St. Peter and Paul uh, Catholic Church in the back of the yard's neighborhood, right? And, and that was the founding story of their parish community, right? A stable community of people whose, whose you know, culture uh, surrounded the church and a parish kind of grew out of that. Um, in so many ways, right? Or, or, or a lot of times, like out here in the West where I live now, now we live in Colorado and here and even further West, a lot of the parish communities are newer. And a lot of them formed because of, you know, the, these urban centers as people moved to different suburban uh, towns. And these towns began to explode and grow after World War II. Increasingly, the parishes got bigger and bigger as they moved out, right? Because there were these stable communities of people who had grown up Catholic and they were continuing to look for community and, and sacramental connection, cultural identity in their parish in so many ways. And so they formed, you know, initially they started having mass in hotel ballrooms and eventually they, they formed a parish and the diocese let them build a building and, and you know, they got bigger and bigger as, the, as they got further and further away from the urban center usually, right? So it's generally like one of these two situations is how a lot of parishes were founded. But in both of those situations, what you see is parish identities rooted in a Christendom culture. Right? There's, there's a stable community of the faithful for which their you know, cultural identity and their imaginative vision for their lives, who they are as people, is rooted in the church. Right? It's formed by it. So that cultural expression mixed with you know, kind of the stability of the family eventually forms a stable community that depends on both of those things. And what we see today in the secularizing moment that we live in where increasingly people are, are, are rejecting uh, the faith of parents. So this, this, this Christendom that, that Fulton Sheen is talking about is dead. And now we're entering into a missionary situation and context that has more in similar, you know, in, in more similar to that that the apostles first experienced, where they kind of burst out of the upper room into a pagan Roman empire for which the dominant imaginative vision for their lives and for how they were supposed to live and for who they are as human persons is not necessarily rooted in the gospel, right? So much is obvious. And what they did with very little money uh, and very little institutional impact and very little, you know, kind of high-ranking, uh, you know, contacts or anything like that over a course of centuries by their way of life and by their relationship with Jesus and by their, by their missionary enthusiasm, 
they baptized the entire ancient world in like a few hundred years, right? It's remarkable, the successful evangelization. And it's that successful evangelization that led to the richness of that Christendom context. And even given, you know, there, there can be an, a healthy Christendom, right? Where there's like a really, you know, sincere, uh, you know, seeking after Jesus Christ, even with the culture supportive. You know, it's like bumper bowling. It's like you got these two lanes, right? The family and the culture supporting uh, church life. And there can be a real health to that, some real advantages to that. The, the hospital system and the university system and so many different things arose out of that Christian imaginative vision that was rooted in Christendom. But the reality that we have to recognize right now is that that no longer exists. Fulton Sheen told us 50 years ago, the Second Vatican Council, the entire thing is predicated on this idea that we're going through this change of ages. I like to compare it sometimes. I'm a, I'm, you know, uh, millennial and so we grew up watching Full House and Michelle Tanner, right? Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen was the youngest girl in the Full House family, and, and she was always supposed to be on lookout when, you know, when her dad or one of the uncles was, like, coming and they were doing something they weren't supposed to do, and so she would always be at the front door, and as she would be kind of telling them that it was coming, she would say, it's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and then he would, you know, would arrive in the kitchen or something. It's like, he's here, right? And for years, the church has been telling us, this is coming. We're entering into this new apostolic age, this new secular era, and so the church and every institution in the church needs to experience a renewal where we now understand our mission and our culture in a new apostolic way. The analogy, I think, sometimes is, is the company Kodak. So Kodak, a Kodak moment, right? They were so synonymous with, with cameras and with film that, that literally it's like Kleenex, where it's like we, we use the word to describe a picture-perfect moment was a Kodak moment, right? But because they were so attached to film, this is a true story, uh, they really resisted the move to digital cameras that was coming. They didn't want to launch digital cameras because it would impact their core business, which was film, which depended on digital cameras. So they kind of put their heads in the sand and didn't look at it, uh, didn't look at the digital camera product. Well, by the time they launched digital cameras, you know, it was like way too late and they were, you know, where they had first been the, the largest camera company by far, they were like seventh in terms of sales of digital cameras, and then finally they went bankrupt in 2011. And, and it was in their bankruptcy, in this moment of kind of looking you know, at the real decline that was in front of them and what had happened because they had kind of ignored the challenges of, of, of the changes that were happening in the culture, that they had an opportunity to kind of have some self-reflection, some conversion. And now today, Kodak doesn't even like, they hardly do cameras and film at all. It's like digital printing and imaging and services for businesses and stuff. They had to completely undergo this culture change uh, from, from what they had been doing to a new context. And I think something similar, an opportunity is in front of our parishes right now, right? Where if, if the, the founding you know, stories of many of our parishes were rooted in a Christendom identity, where we had a stable community of the faithful looking for a way to gather and experience the sacramental life together, if we're moving now into a place where both the culture and the family, those, those bastions that allowed that Christian culture to persist, are now both experiencing you know, some crisis in some ways, then as parishes, I think we have to undergo a similar culture change like Kodak in order to meet the particular challenges of our moment. And that's why I think the parish is the great missionary opportunity for the church right now. Not as it is, but as it's being called to be by God, uh, to, be, to, be, to experience this culture change from a Christendom context uh, to an apostolic one, to, an, to a fundamentally apostolic culture where how we think and conceive in the, the, the status quo of our parish is rooted in this apostolic identity like the church of Ephesus uh, after Pentecost or, or, or like the church of, of Jerusalem, where like the, the core identity and the story uh, of that parish is rooted uh, in, in the perennial mission of the gospel 
And then it, recognizing the unique challenges of our time doesn't, doesn't, doesn't shy away from those challenges, but with hearts filled with hope on what God can still accomplish through our church, which, which has the, the answers to every question and longing of the human heart, um, can watch real renewal happen, both in our parishes and then, and then in the world, right? So there's 17,000 in the United States outposts uh, of the church's mission that we call parishes, right? And these are geographical areas, right? A parish is not necessarily just the building and the faithful who live there, though it is. Um, it's actually broken up. It's an area. It's a geographic area. We have a map. I work for the Archdiocese of Denver. We have a map of every parish. And it's like it ends at this street, and then it goes down to this street. And then, you know, if you go to Louisiana today, their counties are still called parishes because there's a, there's a you know, Catholic origins uh, of that area, right? And really, each of these territories... I think, um, is like a mission territory, right? Um, but, but we have to start to see it that way. It takes a real conversion of culture for us to really see that the building and the stable community of faithful who are present in that parish have a mission that extends to the boundaries of every soul um, that lives in that area. So the, the question becomes for us then, like, well, how? You know, like, whether you're a parish leader or you're someone who's just a concerned citizen of a parish who's like, how do we... You know, the, the, the missionary dynamism that I've experienced through Focus or my campus ministry program or, or some other place, right? Like real community and a real pursuit of holiness and, and a real like fundamental understanding that we didn't just exist for ourselves, but like everybody on campus or everybody. Like how do we start to see that actually happen at our parishes? Well, I, I want to present to you some principles, right? These are not necessarily like the only things uh, that have to be done in order to watch this, this change of culture happen. Um, but there are some things that we can start to do to slowly over time, maybe five, ten years, as leaders in parishes, as concerned citizens of parishes, start to watch the culture of our parishes actually change from a Christendom context uh, to an apostolic one, to experience the kind of self-renewal that Pope Francis is calling for, for these institutions in Evangelii Gaudium. And I think this is critical, walking this journey. I think there's no other option. I think we're like Kodak. Where it's like there's, there's, there's one option in front of us. Either we experience, we see the decline happening, and either we start to watch and we get in front of the kind of renewal and, and missionary conversion that's expected, that's needed of our parishes, or, or I think we, we watch ourselves uh, continue to, to experience some of the discouraging uh, trends um, that we're seeing in terms of you know, attendance and engagement and involvement um, in so many ways, right? And I think it's about more, the, the root of all of this, um, is about that idea that, that, that the, the banner that the movements and apostolates have really carried of the call for the new evangelization to this time in so many ways has to be picked up now by the institution, by dioceses, like the one that I work for, uh, and by parishes, uh, by, by the leaders in those places saying, we don't just exist uh, to, to turn on the lights and to serve those that show up. We exist fundamentally uh, to extend the mission of Jesus Christ to everyone here for sure and to everyone who lives in our boundary. You know, there's a great study. Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church. He wrote the Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. You know, and this one kind of one of the you know, real most significant, uh, you know, um, uh, mega churches for, you know, for, for evangelicals in so many ways. And so he did this study, right, um, where he, they talked to a thousand pastors. And they asked them the question, why does your parish exist? Like fundamentally, like, what's the point? What's the purpose, probably, you know, for him, right? What's the purpose of your parish? Why does it exist? And of these thousand pastors, like 90% of them, an overwhelming majority answered uh, the same way. So we exist so that, you know, all the lost might be sought and saved. 
right? Like we exist to extend the mission of Jesus Christ to go make disciples of all nations to our area. And this is the beauty of what a local church can do that honestly like media ministry or like all these different ways that people do encounter the gospel, like can't quite understand because we can incarnate a, a community of the faithful who can be a witness to the gospel and actually help people to like be loved face to face in relationship. Like the local church can do that and be the presence of Christ in a given territory in the way that very few other things can, right? So they said, this is our mission for our local area to seek and save the lost, right? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful vision. So then they asked all the uh, attendees of those pastors' parishes, right? About a thousand churches. Why does your church exist? And an overwhelming majority, like 90% of the people in the pews uh, at those churches, right? Some were Catholic, most were evangelical, right? They asked them the question, why does your church exist? And most people said, this church exists to meet the needs spiritually, socially, of me and my family, right? And so we have a fundamental disconnect there in terms of vision. So the first principle that I want to put in front of us, right? These are just principles to think our way through the problems and, and not necessarily, you know, like the, the silver bullets or answers to like, but they're things that we can start doing now to start actually changing the culture of our parish. And the first thing that we need to do is fix that problem, right? We need to start with why. We need to cast vision. We need to help people understand why the parish exists and to interiorize that. And even in their own ways to experience like, why am I Catholic in a new way? Right? Because I think if, if you ask many people, why are you Catholic? It's like, well, I grew up Catholic and it means a lot to me and it's important. And, but there's a core why, there's a story that forms uh, our answer for why we exist as a church and why we exist as a parish and why I'm a, a disciple, a Catholic at all, which is fundamentally rooted uh, in the gospel. Right? We call it the kerygma, the initial proclamation, this core story and narrative that, that is why we exist as a church. But if you talk to most people clearly by that study in churches, They don't necessarily understand that the reason we exist is because of that story, right? And that story is very simple, right? Created by a father out of love, right? He didn't need us, but he he liked us. He wanted us to exist. It was good. It was good. It was very good. He created us out of love, right? And in the beginning, that's who we are. That's why the the desires for for love, for joy, for for eternal happiness are are rooted in the human heart, right? Why we exist for relationship, why we crave so desperately to be known, to be seen, to be loved, and to, and, to, and to rest in that and to give that love back, right? So this is who we are as human persons, but we know from looking around at the world that something went fundamentally wrong, right? The most obvious, G.K. Chesterton said, the most obvious Christian doctrine uh, is the doctrine of original sin, because all you have to do is look around and recognize that like, these, this desire that we have for eternal happiness like, is, is somehow not to be found here. Uh, that there's, there's something about the world that seems to have gone so fundament, fundamentally wrong. Why is everything so messed up is a question that every human heart wrestles with at some point in their lives. Through an experience of personal suffering or seeing the the pain in the world, right? And so we know the answer to that question, right? It says in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, man tempted by the devil, turned towards sin, lost trust in his creator, turned towards sin, right? And darkness entered their life. And and, and in this moment of sin, God comes down, right? And And he says, the Father, like, Adam, where are you? Like, where did you go? And we see now that this story of sin, this, this falling into the condition of sin and death, is, is more than just like a legal thing, where it's like, you did a bad thing, so now you're in trouble, you know? But it's like we've been taken from our Father's house, we've been lost, and, and he comes down looking for us, like, where are you, where did you go? And Adam lies to him, and he hides, and he, and he, and he just continues this cycle of sin. And so the entire rest of the story of the Old Testament, after Genesis chapter 3, 
becomes about the story of God's attempts to get his world back. He says in Isaiah 43, I will give nations in exchange for you, right? And I'll bring my children back from the north and the south. You can hear this almost frantic desire of the father to get his entire world back, to bring them home back into relationship with him, right? Us having fallen into sin and rejected him, like he's not going to let us go. He's going to do anything he can. Like think I have three kids, right? If one of my kids was was somehow, you know, tragically lost or taken from, like, I would do anything, anything to go get them back. And so God does, right? Long lay the world in sin and error pining, my favorite Christmas hymn says, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, right? So when the, when the, when the Christ child comes, he's been sent by the Father to get his world back. So when Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, He's proclaiming the war that he has come to wage against the kingdom of darkness that would keep us rooted in sin and death, enslaved, right, captured in sin and death. And when he goes to his cross, that's how he fights for us. He says in John chapter, no one takes my life from me. Like, let's be clear. Let's be honest. Willingly do I lay it down and willingly do I take it up again. So why does he stay there? Why does he hang there, choosing at every moment, right? At any point, he could have come down. So why does he stay? He stays because God wants his world back. He stays because you and I were created to know the love of the Father and to love him back, and nothing else will ever make us happy, and that's worth it. Even in spite of everything I've done, you've done, that whatever, we're worth it. We're worth it. So when Jesus rises from the dead, it's, it's, it's a victory over sin and death, right? This is. Uh, the, the moment uh, when salvation history has reached its climax and he's done it, he's accomplished it, right? It is finished. It's done for you and I. But what remains? For that salvation to be extended to every person and in every time and in every place, right? That's got to go out, right? Because there's going to be people who are going to live 2,000 years after this event. So how does it get to them, right? Jesus has every option available to him to extend that mission to everybody. What does he choose, right? He chooses a church, In Acts chapter 1, the apostles ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit falls on you. It's like, I'm not going to tell you when, but I'm going to tell you who. You're going to do it. And so he sends his church to every time and every place. The church exists so that in Jesus Christ, all might be rescued and have abundant life for the glory of the Father. That's how we say it here in the Archdiocese of Denver, right? That's why the church does much, celebrates much, teaches much, all of it rooted in the idea that fundamentally every human heart is wired, made, for the love of the Father, and we have to extend that to every time and every person every place, right? And so that's why the church exists. It sure as heck is why the parish exists. And if the people in our pews or if the leaders of our parishes don't fundamentally understand that and lead and make clear that with everything we do, that's why we exist, then we're not going to experience culture change. So we have to start there. We have to start with mindset. We have to start with seeing differently and clearly the mission of me as a disciple and as of a parish in light of what the Father came to do when he came down in the garden, you know, thousands of years ago, when he came to get his world back, right? So we have to start there, over and over and over again, proclaiming that story, helping people to understand differently why our parish exists. And then from there, we have to understand, I think one of the great lies of parish life is that everyone gets equal treatment, right? I have to love everyone the same. I hear this from priests all the time. I've been told I have to love everyone the same. Like, this just isn't the model of Jesus and his leadership. He's got a one. It's either Peter or John, based on who you, you know, like how you look at it. He's got a three, Peter, James, John. They come up with him in a particular way and see his life in a new way. He's got a 12 who have been called close with him, commissioned 
for a particular mission, and a 72 who are sent out in twos, and then they come back to him and they receive additional formation and training and mission, then they go out, and then there's 500 only, uh, or, or, you know, that's a lot, if I were to look at it, who see him rise from the dead, right? There's a progressively clear relationship in the leadership of Jesus' public ministry that they receive. And so I think where, where, where culture change begins with uh, is leaders and pastors understanding that, that healthy team and that structure of team uh, that's been put around them and, and to progressively cascade leadership through those levels based on who, who's there right? and who's being called. Like, in a particular way, how do I gather a healthy team around me to lead out of that team, like Jesus with the three? And then, you know, what are those additional tiers, right? And then I think uh, there's a, a real sense that creating culture change then needs to kind of pervade every aspect of parish life. So first, we have to really have a clear understanding of if that's the mission, to go make disciples of all nations is why our parish exists, then we have to have clarity around how we do that. That would be like the third step. Is you need to actually know. It would be crazy if you ask Ford Motor Company, like, what do you do? Why do you exist? Like, we make cars. You're like, okay, how do you make cars? And they're like, I don't know. I think it just kind of happens, you know? It would be crazy. We need a clear understanding of how we make disciples in our parish. So we can say not just the mission, that this is why we exist, but then we can actually say, well, how do you do that? And it's like, well, we do this. We do this, this, and this. It's very clear. It's simple. It's, it's right there and it's present, right? And then that discipleship orientation has to pervade every aspect of ministry that we do. Nothing about parish life can get stuck in that Christendom mentality, can get stuck in that Christendom mode where it's like, well, why do you, how do you reach these people here or this ministry or this sacramental preparation situation? It's like, well, we just give them some paperwork to do and then we make them pay money for the church, right? It's like, no, like we, everything that we do has to somehow fit that fundamental progression of how we can help people come deeper and deeper uh, into holiness, right? So we have to cast vision. We have to be clear about that. Uh, we have to have a really healthy leadership structure. Uh, that progressively empowers people to walk the gospel out in people's lives. We have to have a clear understanding and strategy for how we make disciples. And then we have to align everything with that clear strategy for making disciples so that nothing uh, is outside of that fundamental mission. And then the last point that I want to lead for you, for like if we're leading culture change in our parishes with all this, these principles that we're thinking through uh, with, with, with the call is like, here's the most important thing. God wants this more than you do. God desires for our parishes to be set up as apostolic outposts of the church's mission in a culture which is uh, progressively um, you know, antithetical to that gospel message, but it, within which every human heart still has only one way to the joy that it's made for, right? Like God still wants those, like He still wants his world back. He didn't leave that mission in Christendom, right? He's brought it now to this time, and in a new and unique way, you and I have been called. Uh, to walk that mission out now, right? It's not an accident that we live in this time, and God wants us more than us. And so the, the core principle for all of this, for how we drive culture change in our parishes, is we need to let God lead. We need to let God lead. We need an utter reliance on the Holy Spirit that says, like, sure, I've, you know, we, we, we have got some best practices, and we've got some ideas, and we've got some plans, but it can't just be about like all of us getting in a room and like brainstorming the best ideas. It's got to be about fundamentally falling on our face and saying, Lord, you want this more than us. It can only happen if you do it, right? We don't do renewal. You do. That's always been, the Holy Spirit is the principal agent of all renewal and evangelization in the church, right? And so if that's true, the best thing we can do is say, speak. We need you to speak clearly to us about how we're being called to go. Your word is a lamp to my feet. Right? It's going to give the light for the next right step, and then the next right step, and then the next right step, slowly changing, following at the, at the pace of the Father, changing the culture of our parishes. 
in every age uh, of crisis that the church has encountered, because this isn't the first time the church has encountered crisis and needs to self-understand her ministry in a new way uh, to, to meet the, the evangelistic needs of the moment. And in every age of crisis, the church has always been renewed by people who are living holiness and community and mission in new and dynamic ways. Right? This was the church's earliest apologetic the wonderful and confessedly, markedly different way of life. And one of the first apologetic works defending the church, the epistle to Diognese, this what it says is like, this is their witness, is that there's just something radically different about who we are. And until people come in and encounter our parishes and say, there's something about the way these people live that is just wonderfully and markedly, confessedly different, the way they love each other and the people, the person they're praying to and, and, and how this looks and feels. But until they see that in our parishes, it's not going to move them to say there's something here that's worth seeking out. There's something here that's different and remarkable and new, right? And so at the end of the day, like all of this and letting God lead, what it becomes about, there's no other place to start. There's no big way of renewal. There's only what Focus talks about, the little way of evangelization, right? where each of us lives out love of God and love of neighbor uh, in new ways that are a witness to the world, that where they can look at, at, at our lives, even as broken as we are, they can look at our lives and say, there's something different here. There's something real here. But if we just look like everyone, like, that's just not it. That's just not it. People aren't interested, right? There's no switch that we can flip to just be like, it's all different overnight. It's got to be about all of us recognizing, experiencing, surrendering uh, to the gospel, the high call of the gospel in our own lives, and the greatness, the magnanimity that, that Jesus calls us to, and to the, to the, to the great soldness that leads to mission, that, that, that compelled by love of neighbor, refuses to settle for anything less in our lives and in the lives of all those that we encounter, in our parishes or in our individual lives as our families, right? That's how it happens. In every age of crisis, that's how the Lord has walked out renewal. And I'm convicted that he's doing the same thing today, through movements, through apostolates, and please God, through the institution, through dioceses, through parishes. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, I hope this was a helpful exploration of the topic of, of the culture change that's required for parishes right now. Thanks for listening, friends. To hear more content from speakers like this, join us for Seek 24 in St. Louis, January 1st through the 5th. Visit seek.focus.org to learn more.